Hey, yeah. Uh, welcome to Alpha Bunga Bunga, the global politics podcast at the end of the end of history. But the Guardian is the paper that I've been reading for so long, and it's so rubbish. I can't read the, tele- the, the Telegraph. It's like it's aloof enough that it, it doesn't annoy you. you know? I mean, the, the, but the Telegraph is also live with like making stuff up about Jeremy Corbyn. But it's good, but it's but it's like that. It's like that old like Jewish joke, you know, where it's like, you no, know, two old Jews. One sees the other one reading Der Sturmer, and it's like, what? You know, why the hell are you reading that? It's like, oh well, it says the Jews control the banks and Hollywood and everything. Yeah, it's yeah, great. yeah. But like, that is, that is that is classic momentum anti-Semitism, Alex. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, so sorry if this is a bunged up bunga bunga intro, I've got a bit of a cold, so I will be quick. This week we're talking about South Africa, an emerging economy that a decade ago was excitedly looped in with the BRICS. A decade before that, it was celebrated as the post-apartheid rainbow nation. Here we're going to have a sober look at South African politics today. We're joined by Sean Jacobs, Associate Professor of International Affairs at the New School, a Cape Town native and the founder of media outlet Africa as a Country. Joining myself, Alex, are George Hoare and Ben Fogel. So first off, you're going to hear about what's left of the BRICS, then about Africa as a Country as an outlet, and a wider discussion about Pan-Africanism. Then we go deeper into contemporary South African politics. We talk about corruption, neoliberalism, the state of the left there today, and black nationalist ideology, as well as the ANC's new president, Cyril Ramaphosa, with the consequences of the 2012 Marikana massacre looming in the background. Hope you enjoy it. It'd be nice to just talk about five minutes or something, zoom out a little bit to the kind of international scale of things, and talk a little bit about the BRICS, because, of course, we're familiar all with that whole discourse, which has seemed to completely die to death for, for obvious reasons. But within South Africa, does there remain any of that consciousness amongst the South African elite, especially or South African middle classes, that aspiration to be amongst the BRICS, amongst these great big emerging economies? So part of Zuma's rhetoric actually has been that all the corruption charges are the same as the corruption charges against Chilma as part of a uh, cynic of a campaign of uh, imperialism to undermine BRICS. Yeah. So he's def- and he's definitely utilized the rhetoric we all know it was a coup in Brazil, but it utilized that sort of rhetoric that that was imperialism undermining BRICS rather than the Brazilian bourgeoisie undermining the Workers' Party. And that's definitely been important to South Africa. You'd see it all the time, but mostly cynical. I'm not sure how many people actually believe it. I don't think that BRICS really people in South Africa even understands what that what that's about. I mean, this is a terrible thing. When people hear me say this, they're probably going to hate me. But I think South Africans are very like, What's the word? Uh, inward looking, you know, like uh, I'm trying to find the word for uh, sort of everything is very local. Par- parochial? Par- parochial, yeah. So Africans, I think, are, are very parochial, like despite the fact that the struggle against apartheid was so international um, and that, that, you know, both the South Africans had to rely on the on that internationalism. Well, South Africans was aware that there was this international struggle to free political prisoners or to end apartheid my sense is that south africans are are very are very parochial and don't really make you know i don't think they get the full sense of what what the relationship is with breaks and then secondly i also think it's because they don't they think of, of their own country as very powerful um even though as people have argued they are the weakest member of BRICS. yeah is, is that because of within the African context, it's seen as uh, a, a stronger state, and therefore, um, yeah, I think there's some, 
yeah, there's some statistics that would point out that I think it's got that its size of the South African economy uh, with with within the the region, the Southern African region, is like a, you know something like ten tens of times more than the combined GDP of the other Southern African states. That I think it, there's some at some level I think also within the African continent, it, the size of its economy. I mean, like I think it's so. So Nigeria has a larger economy per GDP, but it doesn't have the kind of infrastructure or the development that South Africa enjoys. South Africa has, you know, all this, all these kind of infrastructure that 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 that, that um, business values like financial regulation, etc. So South Africans, I think, also think of their own country in that way. That's also the way South Africa markets itself. So they wouldn't, they don't, they don't necessarily really care about that. I mean, Mbeki did a lot of this. The pre-NEPAD work, I think, was done by Mbeki with, sorry, the pre-BRICS work, I mean, was done by Mbeki with his kind of Renaissance talk and then concretely with NEPAD and the role that South Africa began to play in the African Union. But again, with, with, when, is, when is, if you travel outside South Africa, and people on the continent will will recognize that importance and talk about the role that Mbeki played. For most South Africans, it doesn't make any, it, they don't know what that's about. They don't mm. know why people are praising Mbeki so much. They just know about the very localized, the sort of very local politics, the very internal politics of South Africa. I mean, of course, Zana Zuma was the, the chair of the African Union for something like five or six years. But all that, the way South Africans think about it was like, you know, when was she coming back to run the country again? I think right. that that's sort of the way I think about I think South Africans think about this stuff. Right. I mean, I asked the question because living in the living in the B of the BRICS, um, certainly among the Brazilian elite uh, and upper middle class has always had very much an eye about an eye on what the rest of the world thinks of it uh, and is very kind of outwardly focused and, and wants to be accepted somehow amongst the community of great nations or great powers or whatever it might be. Um, and so I was curious as to whether there was a similar reflection of that within South Africa as well. Um, I think that was I think that was probably true under a little bit under Mandela. Well, I think because the preoccupation in the beginning was like, well, the beginning people were just like, oh, we are so wonderful, and everybody loves us. Mm -hmm. I think under Mbeki there was a there was a kind of concerted attempt to build like a legacy for South Africa and and, and South African elites. Uh, if you were outside at the time, which I was, you would. You know, I was in grad school in London, then you would. You could hear that, like you know, the way that South African elites were talking about themselves is like an important country, like a powerful country. Like they wanted to be reckoned with as a powerful country. I mean, the Zuma, the the uh, under Zuma, that's the the, the 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 ANC, the elites that 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 identify with Zuma. Um, you know, the, the the sort of public discourse about politics in South Africa is 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 less like that zuma zuma i mean this this you know there's there's some studies on this but under zuma the anc cared less or the government in south africa cared less about that kind of like how are we viewed outside right Zuma less about like how he, how he was viewed on in the rest of the continent or how south africans are so i mean when when the xenophobia happened in south africa ben was mentioning xenophobia earlier and the eff uh, the eff on the one end would make xenophobic remarks, but then when xenophobia happens, it would be though it would turn up to console migrants. Zuma, I think I remember there was like one major outbreak of violence where up to like forty or something people died. Um, and I don't, I don't, I think in the end Zuma didn't even turn up until like say a couple like three four weeks later to go and yeah, that's, meet that's... meet the people who were in 
who were the victims of the violence. So, you know, Zuma could care less about, um, and the argument, the, the arguments, the sort of cynical argument about Zuma is like that he was interested in BRICS because BRICS was working for, for the business interests of his faction within the ANC. Right. Yeah, there's a, there's like a Russia deal about uh, a nuclear deal with Russia that's exactly in the that of it, yeah. But also, I mean, I just want to add on the sort of class, class self-identification rather than uh, class itself of uh, South African middle class is that the way that the South African middle class, as opposed to uh, the Brazilian middle class, in some sense, in a co- very new country, very young country, lacking a sort of unified national culture, is that white South Africans often just view themselves an extension of America or Europe. We like the, we like the Brooklyn hipsters. We just live in Cape Town. And that extends extends to uh, black middle class South Africans, which is uh, as a social force, an up and coming group with establishing a new sort of uh, place in South African society. I think a lot of them view themselves as a extension of the African American middle class, rather than ex- than other African elites or other third world elites. So there's like more of a solidarity with the African American working class than any sort of consciousness about Brazil or Nigeria or. Uh, you know, wherever, yeah. China or India. Some of that stuff is historical. I mean, it's kind of real. Like, there's a way in which South Africa had developed an urban industrial, like, working class. You know, like, kind of, like, very early on. If there's a debate in the 1960s about the the post-colonial African subject by, like, young African elites ending, attending these African universities, that, that's not happening in South Africa. So there's, like, a... There's like a real history as to why South Africa ends up uh, is, is what Ben describes as like why people kind of grab onto and get inspiration from from these African American elites or you know or, or African American culture is because there's a long history of it in South Africa and in the way South Africa developed because the South African state um, resented or prevented Black South Africans from linking up with their fellows in the rest of the continent. So they had to go look elsewhere for these kind of inspiration. For inspiration, that's, yeah. that's really I mean, fascinating. The ANC, yeah, ANC is the longest, uh, oldest liberation movement in Africa, and uh, at this, I mean, before even the Gaviite movement, the mm-hmm. sort of Ethiopian sort of churches played a big role in the early development of the ANC, which also um, burst the Gaviite movement. So there's a shared history there too. No, so, no, agreed, agreed. There's a shared history, but but I think I'm just what I'm just saying is yeah. like. There's these there's these different moments and different yeah. currents that 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 have that have it's had a long history, you know, and 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 that that version of the ANC, the one that looks to the West rather than to other parts of the continent, like say the Pan Africanist Congress did, um, that's the one that dominated, and therefore yeah. we have this kind of politics that we have. I mean, Biko looked to Franz Fanon and African American. Uh, liberation theology from the late 1960s. He wasn't necessarily, you know, reading what they were reading in in Kampala. So yeah. th- this this discussion, I mean, actually ends up being a nice segue. Uh, this discussion of African consciousness and, and Pan African politics, because I wanted to finish off by talking to you, Sean and, and Ben as well, really about Africa as a country, uh, which, as I mentioned at the beginning, is a tremendous resource. Uh, it's an outlet covering all of Africa uh, from a left perspective. And you guys have just uh, just undergone a relaunch. Is that right? Uh, so if you want to tell us a little bit about sort of what you're aiming to do with the outlet, with, that, with the publication. 
So we, I mean, I could say a little bit about the history in a minute, but the the, the relaunch is kind of imminent. It, we sort of just we were sort of like forced to to um, put something up to like you know because we were waiting to to relaunch with a new website now in January, but because of some technical snags, we're just gonna have to like hold off like for a couple of weeks maybe before we bring up a new website. But essentially, what has happened is um, the Africa as a country grew out of um, you know, me blogging in those early, it's like mid 2000s on my own. And by the end of the decade, when the blogging was moving from some, something where people were kind of diarizing and just sharing uh, interesting content um, to, to the emergence of social media that could, where you could say like, hey, you know, look at this article or, or you could debate with people in real time. Um, to most websites taking on a kind of more either reporting or opinion and analysis um, tone to it. And so Africa as a country also made that transition. It moved from like just one person um, to a collective of people contributing. I was still driving. I, I, I was mostly driving and I still do. But, um, you know, drawing on the talents of, of different people working with me and um, and it, it, we relied for up until now, it was a very sort of loose kind of collective. Um, and, and I think what we're trying to do is like, as we move, as we move into this kind of new year, and I should just say something about that. We had discussions over a long period with Jacobin, Jacobin magazine with Bhaskar Sankara, uh, Sankara and his team. And we basically arrived at a point where we joined forces with them under their foundation. So they published Jacobin Catalyst, which is a publication of Vivek Chibber, professor mm-hmm. at NYU, and Africa is a country. And so, you know, it makes sense. Like, basically, Africa is a country, like the way that I ca- would characterize it, I mean, it, I, I, it's unashamedly coming from the left. And I would say it's it's also like, a, but it's not, it, there, there's no, there's no, um, uh, uh, what's the, the the term I want to use? It's not sectarian. Like we, yeah, it's not sectarian. There's no line to it. Um, it's kind of broadly from the left, and I think it's in that way. I think it, it draws on some of the lessons of like the South African struggle, which is to think like broad front. I mean, there's of course like certain positions that we won't hold, but I would say it's a kind of a broad. The politics of it is very broad front, and it represents kind of my own history. I'm from Cape Town. I'm sort of come from a very kind of working class background and my early sort of education, you know, under apartheid, I mean, I sort of come of age when apartheid ends, but my early education is mostly with sort of a mixture of teachers, um, mostly school teachers actually, who either come, came from the, from a sort of Trotskyite background. Um, these were mostly what you would call colored, te- colored people because I grew up in a colored township or they were, they were people aligned to the ANC from like the Congress movement. Um, some of them had like gone to Robben Island. Some had time spent time in prison. So, so that that kind of combination of sort of national liberation politics with, with sort of leftist politics, the politics of trade unions, the politics of Communist Party, etc. Um, you know that that's kind of how I was formed. Um, and and I spent some time you know studying in the U.S., studying in England, um, and now and you know and I live in New York City after 9/11. So I think that. And going back and forth to South Africa and having done, you know, some work with various organizations in some parts of East Africa and in West Africa, I think I I carry like all that with me, like all that experience. Um, 
and and also I'm, I'm trying to do something deliberate which is like the way that south africans talk about politics often um even if there's like we in africa but they talk only about in and in, in in isolation from the rest of the continent often with no making no connections and i think what africa as a country set out to do deliberately was to as much as we focus on the specificity of say south africa or zimbabwe or mozambique or whatever but to begin to think like you know think about connections think about usable paths uh you know cover social movements cover major debates uh cover these can these those things we talked about those connections between between uh you know the united states uh historically uh the way people draw rhetorically on politics even thinking about connections to south america that that are there but we don't we don't often so, talk about it or write yeah. about it and i think what africa yeah. kind of wants to do so yeah so I, I guess i had a question then about about the, the name of of, of mm-hmm. the, the the whole enterprise so right. To, so t- taking from what you're saying, it, it 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 is a it is a little bit more than a kind of ironic joke. It's it is a it is a political project. So I guess the question is, to what extent do you think there's a pan-African politics or consciousness today? I mean, there, there, there's definitely a pan with the project. I think there is a pan-Africanist um, politics. Um, uh, some people joke that, in a sense, we by lampooning this kind of, you know, kind of. Uh, uh, one-dimensional way that people talk about Africa, we are also almost constructing a country, like online. Mm-hmm. We are constructing like a, a kind of a country where, where there's a certain kind of you know with with its political project. So that is true. I would say that there, and Ben can probably like chime in here if he wants. But there is there there definitely there, there's pan there's definitely sort of pan-Africanist projects going on, um, that that are often at odds with like I think how we think about as kind of pan-Africanist projects. So for example, I mean there's. And we've critiqued this. Uh, if you look at Africa, the country, and if you look at its history and the transformation within it, you'll, you'll notice that at some points it will be preoccupied with critiquing some of these these kind of moments of pan-Africanism. For example, there was this notion of Africa rising, which was a pan-Africanism tied to neoliberal politics and to kind of you know the the the, the, the presence of multinationals or or and the and 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 then the, the 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 class of Africans that were that came that came that came to life as a result of that moment. So we've critiqued their politics. Basically, this is just as it's just sort of a trickle down politics. Like, you know, if yeah. if we have all this development in Africa, mostly like modernization, then we will have then then the continent will grow. There's also this, there was another kind of uh, there's another version of it called Afropolitan. These are sort of cosmopolitan um, elites, often the children of, of, of the people running these countries. Sometimes they are, they they are, they could be somebody like me, but the, your politics just takes another direction, in which you are you you have like you often have like two passports and you can kind of move around and then you sort of generalize your experience to of, of comfort or whatever to like assume that that's the experience of of most Africans. So, like that's, I think, uh, what we're trying to challenge. There's the way in which um, uh, statism, like the way people celebrate um, uh, a kind of like, you know, we'll do it our way, and then that's that dangerous politics of like where you begin to celebrate like a anything from a Mugabe uh, to a Uru Kenyatta or a or a, 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 a um, uh, what's his name in, in Congo, Joseph Kabila. So, like, I, I think there's. There's all kinds of, 
uh, and or, or these kind of new sort of like you know the, the, the politics of identity like I think there's there's all these kind of moments where it's about fashion and style and adornment so yeah we're aware that all these kind of pan-African and pan-Africanisms exist what we're trying to do I think is without being didactic but we are trying to look for, for what I would say like we draw on this on, on the radical past of Africa Sankara you know, Tambo, where, like wherever there were moments, mass movements, strikes, um, where people where people actually managed to to make gains. Like we want to celebrate that. We want people to know that it's possible to make those changes. And we and I and I would say where our thoughts align with like movements elsewhere. We believe in public education. You know, we believe in 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 public health, etc. So we want those things, and we and we. We some of our criticism, or when we make criticism, it can be very, um, can I say it, can be very crude when we make fun of like just the misrule of by certain African elites. Um, but at the same time, I think we're trying to push people towards seeing like a different future than the one that we've inherited. Yeah. No, that's brilliant, and it's a, an extremely worthwhile project. I'm a big fan. I, I have to admit to not knowing that much about African history or contemporary politics, and uh, it's always been a great resource for me personally. Um, so at the end of last year, Cyril Ramaphosa was elected president of the ANC. Uh, he's one of South Africa's richest people and is likely to become the country's next president after elections in 2019. Looking at it from the perspective, at least of international media, they largely welcomed this as he pledged to fight corruption and I think generally seen as being more investor friendly, which is something that we're going to hear about very shortly, uh, something which uh, contrasts to the corrupt rule of Zuma. Um, so I guess for our listeners who might not be familiar with South Africa in detail, kind of what's the key conflict within South African establishment politics? Uh, it's been characterized sort of as on one side, white monopoly capital and Zuma plus the Gupta family, the so-called Zupta uh, on the other. Would that be a, a fair characterization, Sean? I mean, yes and no. So the, to some extent, you could argue that, that um, and, and this is probably how Ramaphosa and his supporters would like to portray him, which is that he's some kind of reformer um, that wants to, you know, clean the clean the the ANC of this legacy that Jacob Zuma has kind of inserted into it. But what people forget is that Sarah Maposa is as much part of this legacy. So, and I'll just quickly make like you know in quick terms, let me just make that argument. So, for one, I mean Sarah Maposa. I think he became the ANC's deputy president at the last, not this conference, but the last one. So he's been around Jacob Zuma while Jacob Zuma um, was corrupt. He became Jacob Zuma's deputy president within the government while Jacob Zuma was, was you know, stealing and consorting with, with, uh, with uh, business interests, particularly this uh, in, um, Indian immigrant family, the Guptas. So Ramaphosa, Ramaphosa just... He just stood around and did nothing. So, so to, to to paint yourself as an anti-corrupt figure doesn't gel with with the record. Secondly, what is often in this kind of uh, um, uh, this, this sort of euphoric writing about Ramaphosa, what's lost in that writing is that when Ramaphosa was a non-executive um, director of a mining company, Lonman, which most people know that place as Marikana. Um, he wrote in internal emails, he wrote to the board of that company, essentially sort of saying like, hey, we need to deal with, with the strike. This was a strike by a group of miners who had formed another trade union, well, 
I mean, they striked first and then they joined um, uh, another trade union, which was a rival to an ANC aligned trade union. And he basically, in an email, said we should, you know, call in the police um, to deal with this problem, like to deal to deal with this 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 problem at the mine. Um, and as we now know, which is not a, you know, this is very well known. Subsequently, uh, I think 34 miners were murdered, like in broad daylight, by the South African police, and and for which nobody since then, since 2012, has actually been held responsible. Neither Ramaphosa, the minister of the police, um, the South African president. So Sir Ramaphosa's legacy, mm-hmm. as much as Sir Ramaphosa is being portrayed as a sort of a different type. That Zuma represents. He this in some elements he's sort of cast from like the same cloth. Having said that, however, it is true that he's a totally different kind of, you know, in terms of like temperament, uh, the way he projects the, himself, like just the sort of basic things that I think that Capital likes. That he knows how to like string sentences together. He can read from a document. Um, he looks competent. He wears a suit. He's not surrounded by like, you know, a thousand hangers on. Um, and in their terms, you know, he has experiences, right? He's run a business um, and he gets he gets to have some kind of legit- legitimacy because he comes from the trade union movement. What people forget is Sarah Raposa was the general secretary of the largest trade union on the apartheid, which was the, the National Union of Mine Workers and ANC line movement that played a crucial role in defeating apartheid. So we cannot discount that. So there's... There's a way in which he he also doesn't he doesn't come from exile, he comes from within South Africa. Exile is known for sort of secrecy, um, and operating operating like you're in some kind of war. Soramaphosa doesn't operate like that politically. He's a savvy political operator, but that's not his kind of politics. So there is a in tone, I suppose, or in the way that he will govern, he'll he'll you know he'll he'll come across as like suave. Uh, more media friendly than his predecessor would be. So you could you could argue like for the optics it would look good, but in terms yeah. of like fundamental changes, it's like how South Africa would be governed. I don't I don't think so. So I, ideologically, um, the wing around him hasn't doesn't represent anything uh, even to distinguish itself from Zuma. Um, the other thing that Cyril is very well known for is for playing a key role in negotiations that ended apartheid. He's seen as somebody who uh, ha- is very skilled as a negotiator. Ju- as both in the trade union movement and in politics. And in that respect, he's seen as somebody who's also potentially can reconcile the different factions within the ANC. But in terms of his ideological project, it uh, it's come out in this document called A New Deal for South Africa, and it's re-emphasizing what the ANC has been saying for a while now and not doing is that we need to have a high growth, st- stimulate manufacturing, uh, open up markets, have special economic zones to stimulate ma- manufacturing, uh, protect elements of the welfare state. He's not saying anything new. It's really, but the people who are associating with him are kind of Zuma's begrudge lovers in the South African Communist Party in Kasatu, who are sort of pale reflections of their former selves within terms of political power, and uh, sort of fractions of um, the ANC that were associated with the Treasury, which were seen as uh, men who were very friendly to capital, very competent, fighting corruption, and representing a sort of tradition of principled civil service within the ANC. And again, these things are complicated. Like, I mean, the, 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 you can make an argument that there are principled civil servants in South Africa who still believe in, in, in you know, performing a public function and making sure that, like, ordinary poor South Africans 
begin to enjoy the fruits of like the whatever you want to call this thing, the new South Africa. So, so it's all we we don't want to caricature these people, but I think Ben Ben's comments about like Ramaphosa's sort of policy plank. I think one of the things I also read is that, for example, he's impressed by free trade zones. Like so, he's looking to China also to to think about how to revitalize um, the South African economy, um, and in that way. He's a version of like the kind of politician that you would see in, you know, somebody who's trying to like run the government in Ghana, who's running the government in um, the, the reformer, who's trying to like run, say, um, a government in East Africa or whatever. Um, that he's just easy. He represents a type. Mm-hmm. There's something about him in which it's a sort of kind of an empty vessel that just kind of has platitudes and says all the kind of right things. That the we- that Western investors would like to hear, and that they would cut slack. You know, if, if, even if he, even as we now know, he's very much implicated in Marikana, but you, but in this telling, they'll just they'll just they won't talk about that part. They'll keep it quiet um, because, as far as they're concerned, he's, um, you know, for all intents and purposes, he's running the economy well. I mean, they, the same thing happened with Tabombeki. Yeah, I mean, also it's worth noting what companies that Searle actually made his money on. And they, he of, they often refer to this as the ANC deployed men into the business, right. private sector to exert political influence there. But it was Mac, he was the chair uh, or the director of South, the South African uh, franchise of McDonald's and Coca-Cola. But I'll also say since taking power uh, within the ANC, there's been uh, several big moves which have put Zuma on the back foot. And it does seem like the prosecution's uh, authority in South Africa is moving to freeze assets of the Guptas. And there are some indications that there is a slight element of real tangible anti-corruption measures happening in at least parts of the ANC. Right. And when he got elected, not to get too much into sort of insider baseball of ANC politics, when he got elected, the, of the, the, the six most powerful positions within the ANC, I think he controlled three and the faction or the people who were aligned to Zuma, this is the deputy president, the new deputy president of the ANC, David Mabuza, who's seen as very corrupt and as sort of a Zuma acolyte. Um, they control three positions. But now I, I think I just saw that they've announced the National Working Committee. Um, and it sounds like the Ramaphosa faction um, seem to have the majority of the most key positions kind of under their control. So. You know, it, it's it's in that old sort of ANC language, which is, I mean, this is also a trap that we don't want to fall into, that, the, that when you analyze the ANC, you always hover between this kind of poles of saying, oh, everything has gone to the dogs, or the ANC has the ability to reform itself. Right. And I think so we're, we're going like, to come on. We're going to come on to that question specifically. I think in a little yeah. bit. Um, yeah. But I think first of all, firstly, before that, it would be interesting to roll back maybe a little bit and try to understand what's happened with South Africa over the past decade or so, especially under Zuma. Um, I mean, I already talked about corruption, and I think a lot of the discussion about South Africa is dominated by that notion. I don't want to get too drawn into that, but at the same time, it may be, may be useful to understand to what degree did Africa become more corrupt under Zuma? If it did, um, what, what was the nature of his rule? I mean, the, the ben, ben can back me up on this, or he can disagree if he wants but i think there is an argument that it's not like corruption started in south africa with the end of apartheid i mean it's well documented that that the apartheid state was very corrupt i think there's a new book that came out in south africa by a researcher henny van Fieren that details that whole 
um, that period. I mean, by the end of apartheid, many South African government ministers went to prison on corruption. So there's a there's a built into the South African political system. I think there is there is uh, the way it operates is like you know corruption is endemic to it. It's part of the system. It's also Having worth said, probably mentioning the Pakistans. Right, and then there's the then there are these um, at least in 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 five of South Africa's nine provinces. The, the the those provinces under apartheid were governed by a form of indirect rule, and when apartheid ended, they were incorporated into, if you want, like white South Africa or the government. You know, they they became part of South Africa again, um, and that's uh, those civil servants were retained. Um, the mode of rule, which is mostly done through these kind of traditional authorities, they were just sort of more like updated. Um, you know, uh, and the ANC kind of exploited this to manage. The, the political aspirations of people within those places. So kind of a, a the system of apartheid at some level, the corruption of apartheid was retrained. But that doesn't mean we cannot, I think it, it would be foolish to suggest that that uh, the Zuma regime, that the regime under Zuma, so yes, under Mbeki, there was the arms deal scandal. Um, and most people would agree it's, 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 there's very little sign that Mbeki himself was corrupt. Or even if Mandela, who became really wealthy after the end of apartheid, and some people would say deservedly so, um, because many of that generation of Mandela, they didn't make any money. You know, they, they spent long times in prison. They couldn't take care of their families. So people were sort of cutting them slack. But the level of corruption, I would say, under the Mbeki and Mandela regimes weren't as... Uh, open crash like as it as it was under Jacob Zuma, it just became. I mean, it is a problem. The, the problem mm -hmm. of corruption in South Africa became real <clears throat> under Jacob Zuma. So even if you even if you make that critique that says, "Wow, we we shouldn't just spend all our energy and talking about corruption," and then basically you you then just have uh, a sort of cleaner form of neoliberal government replacing the government of Jacob Zuma. The, the, the issue was that there was there was a marked increase in how openly corrupt the South African state became under Jacob Zuma. So, um, so I think I, I'm just going to step in. So it's probably worth uh, emphasizing for um, listeners who aren't really familiar with this that um, Zuma came into power on a sort of populist, almost almost leftist, man of the people platform. He uh, he came. He was supported by the Communist Party. And Kasatu, South Africa's largest trade union federation, on the uh, in his rise to power against Thabo Mbeki, who was running for a third term as president of the ANC, and it was real widely seen as the architect of South African neoliberalism. So they promoted Zuma as the anti-neoliberal, the man of the people, even though he came through this process having rape charges brought against him, as well as corruption charges brought against him. But under Zuma's rule, what I, I I would argue, and I think Sean would agree with me, the form of corruption that really became dominant isn't the usual sort of corruption as a mode of rule, but the sort of whole-scale looting of uh, state-owned enterprises, state assets, the sort of transfer of wide sections of the South African state's capital to this Indian-connected business family, and the rise of these sort of private fiefdoms of these Gupta-connected politicians in provinces. Uh, as a way of, uh, so like the state itself was like eating itself as a form of corruption rather than cor corruption being the way that the power is just managed in the state. Right. right. And and doing is, it, I mean, doing do it also in ways that are just sorry for interrupting no, again, but ahead. doing it in ways that are both very clumsy 
like in the way that they did it, it just looked sort of clumsy and bad and, 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 you know, like the way they went about it. And at the same time, there was also a way, I think, in which they would, they would dare people to criticize them because they would do this, they would do this under the cover of what you said at the beginning, this notion of like, so Zuma representing the way that Zuma represented himself, given that he, when he came to power or his rise to power was as this candidate of the left against the neoliberal Mbeki, what they would do is to frame their corruption or their looting as them attacking the whiteness of the South African economy. So their, their sort of buzzwords became radical economic transformation. They would refer to their opponents, white or black, as representing white monopoly capital. And they would, they would, they, they, the way they would characterize the looting by the Guptas, they would characterize the Guptas as kind of, uh, as the representatives of black economic empowerment. Right. So Patriotic. They, they did something really clumsy. You know, it, lo- it just looks like gross when you look at it. But at the same time, they managed to also like um, uh, uh, cloth it or put it in, in, in under the garb of this kind of, of a radical economic policy. But so that brazen that brazenness did have, as you say, a certain ideological disguise um, around it. To what extent did that rhetoric actually work? Because um, I mean, they were obviously able to carry on. People speak even about the Guptas, you know, undertaking sort of state capture. And I kind of also wanted to ask uh, a question about that, about whether you would you would use that term uh, to regard uh, in regard to what happened. Or I think in the beginning, sort of, I think in the beginning people were more inclined people within the ANC or or people you know just like the general mass would, were buying into it um i think marikana proved to be a crucial point because it's around that time that um a mem- the sort of leadership of the african national the, the ANC's youth youth league like the youth wing of the ANC um and the kind of main figure then was julius malema who was kind of you know the they're the public defender of everything that Zuma did. If people questioned Zuma's corruption or questioned like whether or not that the state was using the police force um, to oppress people who were protesting these these policies that were detrimental around housing or healthcare um, or education, then Julius Malema and the NGU would always defend Zuma and declare that Zuma is bringing would bring a, a you know bring bring to bear or, or uh, this radical economic transformation, and I think what happened around the time of the of Marikana, Julius Malema made like the first sort of public break. It, 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 I mean, ben, I would be interested to hear what Ben, how Ben sees that those events. But I would I would suggest that it was Julius Malema who began to question this sort of notion or this kind of ideological clothing of Zuma as kind of this radical. Um, you know, leftist figure. Um, and again, I mean, Julius Malema, as we know, you know, he's crude in his own way, uh, but somehow managed to, and, and he uses mostly spectacle, but he basically was the one to break with it at first. And at the same time, you had a group of unions within so, so for outsiders again, South Africa, the way South Africa is governed, it's governed by an alliance of the South African, of the ANC, the South African Communist Party and the trade union movement. And the trade union movement was in a crisis because of, of Zuma's character, um, having that, given that they had supported him to get into power. So what had happened around, I would say, roughly 
before the election, the election of 2009, with Malema now breaking from the ANC, well, not yet. Uh, 2012, 2012, you have Malema breaking from the ANC. Within the trade union movement, there's a split, and it's a split between a set of unions who, who, you know, who don't believe this kind of rhetoric. This is mostly the Metal Workers Union, the National Union of uh, Metal Workers. And are they more radical union? More uh, radical unions, yeah, yeah. Breaking with the ANC, and they don't they don't form an alliance with with, with Julius Malema, but that that had the the the, the ideological unity about Zuma as kind of the candidate of the left begins to sort of fall apart. People openly question it in public. The middle classes question it. And then it leads up to, I would suggest, the local elections of um, August 2013, where uh, look, see, It's later than that. It's later than 20- that. But you begin to see, like, the, you know, ordinary people who normally would have just voted for the ANC either stay away from the polls or openly begin to say, I'm not voting ANC. So the ANC loses... Um, the Pretoria, which is Trane, the capital of South Africa, they lose control of Johannesburg, they lose control of of the Eastern Cape. So, I mean, there's a lot of other things that happen, but I yeah, would just say to clarify, this is the greatest signpost of this of this politics. Yeah, uh, I agree with pretty much everything that Sean said, but I will say about I'll say two things: the effect of the incorporating like white widespread state looting under the uh, rubric of um, radical economic transformation, the effect was not so much that people necessarily widely <clears throat> believed in it, but it drained the debate of its content. It became a content debate. The ability to articulate a left position, because this is the people claiming the left, you become associated with corruption, incompetence, and uh, critiques of corruption become associated with whiteness. So it was able to make uh, organizations like NUMSA basically stay out of the anti-corruption debate because the anti-corruption debate was seen as linked to white capital or neoliberalism. So it had right. this widespread effect of draining the energy out of this uh, debate and also making the left look really bad to the point it's very hard to find like open left positions in South African public debate right now because the rubric of radical change is being claimed by the most cynical and corrupt faction with the ANC. So did that, I mean, on the one hand, did that strengthen the kind of more neoliberal wing of the ANC's hand, um, or indeed outside of the ANC uh, in the meantime? And on the other, I I guess that led to a sort of more disillusionment effectively on the left more than anything. Yes, I mean, I would say that the EFF, Malema's party, has, rather than the union movement, the Communist Party being the ones keeping leftist ideas, uh, policies in the public discourse, but in general, the support for Zuma the, uh, from the Communist Party and the trade union movement really weakened their position, especially after Marikana. And also on your state capture question, the technical definition of state capture is when a outside entity is a, takes basically the ability to control direct governance of the state to an extent. And that did happen. It was ministers were directly appointed by the Guptas to the point they were so crude as they would invite them to their mansion in Johannesburg and tell them you'd be the next minister of finance. And that was really going on. Mm, right. So, I mean, that because state I capture suggests a, a certain a qualitative change, not just a, a, a larger degree of corruption, right, in purely quantitative right, terms. Right. Here, here's one other thing that I think um, also happened. So, I think there was, it's, it's two decades or so, well, two decades after the end of apartheid, the prevailing discourse was like the discourse of the left, and the ANC as a kind of representative of, of this national democratic revolution. I mean, the ANC is a liberation movement, it's a nationalist movement, but it it always sort of 
had an alliance with the left and and could be presented as if, I don't know if you want to call it the representative of sort of a the state representative of a left project. So that project, given that that project, I would say ran into crisis with with uh, the corruption of Zuma, the the neo first the neoliberal project of of of, of um, Becky, and then the corruption of Zuma, and then I think in hindsight people questioning the terms of the of the negotiated settlement between the apartheid government and the ANC in the early 1990s. So people are looking more critically at Venezuela, and, and this is where I think the change come. There's also now a generational change. You have a whole group of people who have had no experience of like growing up under apartheid and, and they've only experienced the ANC as the state. The ANC did not deliver for these various reasons. It's kind of like the, the nature of the economic policy, the political deal of the 1990s, the corruption of Jacob Zuma, the sort of only rhetorical commitment to changing fundamentally the the nature of South African society. And out of that, I, I would say also also what comes back is a kind of uh, a sort of black nationalist politics. And that black nationalist politics um, rejects this, this, this the, the leftist critique. They reject that kind of liberal critique about corruption. And they... They, it's unclear in the beginning, like how they, and, and it'd be interesting to say what Ben thinks about this, but like I think in the beginning, they, 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 they're in sort of a strange position in their relationship to Zuma. They initially spend all their energies on blaming everything that's going wrong in South Africa on the deal of the early 1990s and on, if you call it, like white supremacy. And they do not spend any energy on thinking about the fact that the ANC actually controls the state and that the ANC has been, had made a rightward turn a while back, so they spent all their energies, I mean, the, I would think the student movement, when initially in its initial manifestation, and in the way that it demanded free education, it really focused not on the fact that it was the state's duty and that they should demand this right from the state, they demanded this right from some amorphous moving target called white supremacy, for better or worse. And I think that that muddied the waters around how the ANC, how you could critique the ANC. Like when Ben says like, not like the sort of the impotence of the left on these questions is like it's now being is the return of kind of a black nationalist or or black what, what people generally in South Africa call black consciousness politics of the 1970s. It comes back. It's updated. I mean, you know, it draws on like a whole other discourses from the United States and so on. But I think that that muddies the the whole story further in like how people respond to Zuma. So, so I mean, I, for, I, for, I, the, for the benefit, uh, George, come in right after me. I just wanted to ask a quick push a little bit on the on the question of black nationalism, because for the benefit of uh, of our listeners who might not be so familiar with, with the politics of South Africa, would I mean, would it be fair to characterize black nationalism as the kind of political center? I mean, you know, in terms of a political spectrum that one could put this black nationalism as a center as a fairly status quoist um, political ideology against the left and against the, the, li the liberals or neoliberals to the right. Right. So let me say something quickly, because I know Ben has a lot to say about this. There's a longer, I mean, of course, uh, the, the, you, you're probably right. There's, there's some elements of black national, which is centrist. And I think people, this might be seen as sacrilegious, but if you go back, some of what I think Biko wanted for South Africa wasn't necessarily that radical. I mean, it was just in that moment, he was demanding that black people, you know, be in charge of their own destiny and figure it out for themselves. But it is also true that there is in, in, in the long history of kind of like black nationalist politics and people organizing and people thinking about citizenship, that there are radical currents within black nationalism and that some of those radical currents were contained in the ANC 
were even contained within the Communist Party. People forget, like, as early as the 1920s, the Soviet Union made, you know, came, I don't want to call it like, uh, they, they, got to, they got to terms with the fact that, like, look, South Africa, uh, the problem is a problem of, like, the self-determination of black people. They've been land dispossession, they've been, people have been denied their political rights. And so the characterization of the South African struggle as one that had to be, there had to be the emancipation of black people. So there's, and that, the way that the ANC and others, like, identified or, like, articulated that struggle in the beginning was black nationalists. So nobody's, nobody's, I think nobody's questioning that there's a radical element to black nationalism. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm not saying you're doing that, but I think there is a radical element to it. Um, I think what happened, what happens in the present is that there are some elements of the black nationalist critique in South Africa, which I think has a radical content to it. Um, but then at some levels, I think it sort of like falls down and gets sort of um, caught up in, you know, identity politics, politics about representation. Um, and it, it, it doesn't want to confront this fact, the state, the state is the ANC and mm-hmm. that the ANC is black. Like, yes, there's, yes, there's residual white racism in South Africa that controls parts of the economy, uh, that has extensive privilege. Nobody denies that. But there's also like, who controls the state? Who, who can make laws? Who can make economic policy, um, to change that? Who can actually like call the bluff if you know of white supremacy in South Africa? Who has the numbers? Like, I think that those are like uh, parts of that struggle that always of this of the, when these debates happen i think that gets lost in these debates in south africa right um just can i just add on to that quickly um so the way that zuma has really led the country and you see this when he addresses parliament when he addresses the anc it's like he's a powerless president he's the victim of circumstances there's nothing he could really do it's like he's a third party stand bystander to the marikana massacre he speaks as if he wasn't he was like somebody outside the realm of power when this is happening. And it's a real feature of his rhetoric that he's the victim of circumstances, that like everything happens without his direct influence, despite being the most powerful man in the country. And that combined with an element and one of the more myopic elements within the black nationalist uh, sort of tradition critique that uh, Sean is pointing to, which often imports stuff from America, like Afro-pessimism, is arguing that black people fundamentally have no power in South Africa. And Zuma's able to say, it's like, I have no power. And those sort of things combine to this point where it's always like when you speak about this issue of the state, people try to change the conversation to whiteness or white capital. And that's kind of a feature, a long-running feature of the debate, and it becomes a way of almost sucking energy out the room. It's kind of the way that Mugabe played this debate, too. I don't know if George wants to come in, but I think it's a way that Mugabe also played this debate. Nobody denied that, like, they had been history of land dispossession, that in general, whites were very conservative in Zimbabwe. Um, and so Mugabe, because white were like an easy target, Mugabe's like pretty, you know, he could just talk about whites. And in yeah. fact, anybody who's had an experience of Mugabe's rule can understand this as a crisis starting in the late 1990s, that Mugabe lost the referendum, that then he decided suddenly that he's rediscovering that the land question is an issue. He can mobilize, you know, people on the basis of that while he's dispossessing black people or, or forcefully moving them out of the city or using the police against them, etc. But like what he just does is to say, like, why are people getting mad about a group of white people? So I think it's, I mean, it's not, I'm not saying that the ANC state is going after white people. But I think rhetorically, that's what they do. 
that's the sort of game that's being played here. No, and, and, and some people to it, and some people can see through it. Yeah, and, and I mean, and for, I mean for, for our listeners, uh, we covered this a little bit on, well, to, in some depth actually, on our episode in Zimbabwe from, from a month or two back. So I'd uh, recommend listeners go check that one out as well for a good kind of point of comparison with what we're discussing here. Um, George, do you want to come in with something? Yeah, so I, I was going <clears> to <throat> refer to our episode on, on Zimbabwe anyway, Alex. Um, but yeah, <laughs> good to get that plug in. Um, no, so I guess, I guess my question is, what, what's the, the role of the Bell Pottinger scandal? In all of this, I mean, is it is it um, correct to say just quite simply that they were just a Thatcherite PR firm who tried to get this white monopoly capital tag passed around the left as a way of consolidate, uh, consolidating the Gupta takeover? Or is it a bit more complicated than that? Because I think this is maybe one of the, the times at which um, South Africa has been in the international press. So it'd be interesting to hear, Sean, your, your, your take on this, I guess. Um, can I just step in quickly first before Sean? Yeah, yeah. So, uh, the thing with the Bell Pottinger scandal, and this is where kind of like what Sean was framing it at earlier, is that what it reveals is that this simplistic dichotomy between the state capture Gupta line capital and so-called white monopoly respectable capital breaks down because a number of these big white firms like Trillion, McKinsey mm-hmm. and Company, and Bell Pottinger have been implicated in that they just saw this is an opportunity to make money. We don't really care about who we're working with as long as we can make money. And I think that at the core of it, these networks go come go all the way back to apartheid. But at the end of it, this is a predatory capital, as capital is predatory everywhere, feeding off opportunities that they saw provided by the ANC government's relationship with the Guptas. Mm. Right. But and another thing about South Africans are South Africans don't don't like to recognize so so um, this is a, it's going to be a long way of answering George's question but I'll try to keep it short <laughs> South Africans have a history of trying to see themselves as exceptional as different and so the way that say um, global political forces play out in South Africa they'll 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 play it down or they'll you know like they 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 they'll play up their own agency in something and so Bell Pottinger, even though it's it's a key part of like how Zuma's rule was being reproduced or Zuma's rule with the Guptas and the other elements, you know, the facts, the Zuma faction, if you want to call it that, there's a way in the South African, in within South African political debate in which sort of Paul Paringer appears, I, I don't know, as a kind of uh, a sensationalist like story and then it just goes away. And one one other example is like, I'm fascinated, like, like I'm kind of curious, like, for example, how Steinhoff, the whole Steinhoff and, uh, um, uh, accounting scandal based on South Africa. And when you ask people who are in South Africa, like, you know, is this a big deal? Because I just saw that JP Morgan published its year-end results and said that they were taking a big knock because they made a loan to 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 Steinhoff, you know, the uh, to, to the South African company Steinhoff. And they're like, nah, if it doesn't involve the, if it's not explicitly about like the ANC or you can't name an ANC politician in a particular instance, then South Africans just kind of like, they don't they don't pay much attention to it. So the, the, while this so 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 it's it's that, and then I think the other part of it is like, a, in a lot of ways, the way politics operates in South Africa is like even if the facts are there, people operate more like with um, with, uh, with sources and hearsay, um, uh, and 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 you know it's like the the. the the way that politics happens every day, or like the scan, it's like scandal. And so, Bell Pottinger mm-hmm. happened, 
uh, and then people just move on because um, it was like they would say we can't prove that and they move on can i ask sean a question just to give more background yeah. sean can you uh, explain to the listeners uh the da and how the opposition parties uh have portrayed a certain type of uh white politics associated with competence which really masks what they actually do and how this plays into this as well I mean, this is so currently, I don't know if people know that there is a crisis around water management in, in Cape Town, in which Cape Town, I think, would become the first major city that that um, that uh, would be. I think they're running out of water, right? That they, they yeah. are able to provide people with, with like a reasonable amount of water. And so now they're telling they've created like this sort of ad hoc system in which you kind of go with a, you know, with a with a with a bucket or a or a pail and you go and you're going to ask for, you, you stand in the line, a tap. And then, so now people are learning that there's a water crisis in South Africa. I mean, there's a longer debate about like that. Finally, it's white South Africans who are facing this crisis and therefore people are beginning to care about it. But what, what is happening here is like that province is governed by the Democratic Alliance, which is a party that it has a lot of black voters to it. And the current leader is black, Musi Maimani. I mean, Penn has a lot more to say about him, but the party is generally seen as the sort of um, the, the the protector or the representative of kind of sort of white political interest, particularly like white suburban interest in South Africa. And what is clear to anybody who's watching this crisis in South Africa is that the, the, the Democratic Alliance is governing that province very, you know, the way that they're doing this water management thing, if they're doing it very badly, they got that province into this crisis. Secondly, that the way that, for example, they... Uh, manage the housing crisis there is bad that the way that the, the 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 people's safety like it's the most violent province in the country yet somehow it is the province that is that is depicted sort of um as as the place of competence and i mean it it feels like a stretch but it's sort of the way that the western cape operates like in the sort of the public imagination in south africa is that it's like an outpost of that western world like london New York or Europe. Mm. And so even if the same kind of things happen there, they don't get the same kind of press if they're happening in a province which is governed by the ANC. Um, and people yeah. don't give it the same kind of attention and, um, or the same kind of way that they would describe corruption or crisis. So you would, like currently there's a story that the former leader of that party, um, the national leader of the Democratic Alliance, that he was appointed as the, uh, he got a massive PR contract of more than like half a million South African rands um, to explain to people like why they're not getting water. I mean, it just sounds like a politically connected deal, but you won't see that kind of writing in South African in the South African press. You will you'll see it, but very minimally, and people would move on from it. Yeah. So there's a so it's also muddied by this, and that makes it easier for that makes it very easy for for Zuma supporters when they're on the defensive, is they point to that and say, why aren't people talking about that? They're talking about our corruption. I mean, the other aspect to this is that, uh, like Cape Town is very similar to the sort of imagination and working of Rio de Janeiro in uh, representations of a type of South Africa, yeah. which also makes it the most violent city in South Africa by some some way. It has a murder rate higher than Rio de Janeiro. It has over 2,000 murders a year. It is a uh, big story of social crisis. But the DA does not take political flack for the levels of public violence and uh, social crisis in the city. Um, 
just quickly, who, also, what, who, what, what, what is the DA's kind of social base to kind of paint a picture for, for our listeners? Uh, for, former National Party voters, who are people who voted for the party of apartheid, which also includes uh, um, people who um, were part of sort of patronage networks in parts of the country, uh, white middle-class voters, Indian middle-class voters, colored middle-class voters, and now a new section of new black middle-class voters who basically, if you ask them, they're like, I want the uh, potholes repaired and things to work properly, and that's a competent vote. So it's gone from... Right, and here's one other thing too, because Ben sort of alluded to it already. There's something else also happening in South African politics, which is um, large parts of the black middle class who, and even some of the working class who are disillusioned with the ANC, um, if they if they are moving, if if they you know, if they're not withdrawing from politics and they're still voting, they end up voting for the for the DA, and you know without politics is. You shouldn't make predictions in politics because then you you always get it wrong. But we we Ben and I always talk about this. I think that South Africa um, is 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 getting to a point where this kind of the social base that that kind of is developing around the DA, you're going to end up with something where you where you'll get like the ANC um, as mostly a party of of I mean depending again on like how Ramaphosa um, you know managers or, or or leads the ANC, but I think the ANC will become mostly a party of these sort of like rural, more rural South African provinces, Mpumalanga, KwaZulu-Natal, Limpopo, um, and the DA will become kind of the, the this alliance of, of these sort of various factions of, you know, white middle class people, uh, elements of sort of uh, the colored population in the Western Cape, including working class people. I mean, I think I think you would have elements of that say, in Brazil, where people where sort of working class yeah. people also vote for right wing politicians. But you're going to have a situation. I I have a sense of like these sort of two poles, in which the ANC manages to stay in power probably for like another two elections or so. Um, but it it's without the legitimacy that it had in the struggle against apartheid and in that first two decades. Um, and it's a rump. It's like mostly this kind of rural provinces. And then you have the DA uh, representing the, the sort of ref, you know reform, anti-corruption, um, and it and and it increasingly will will get sort of favorable coverage by the media because it's not radical. It doesn't. It's not going to upend like the way South Africa is is the way this African political economy works. All it's going to do is just kind of it will bring what what is referred to as competent, despite its record mm-hmm. in the Western Cape. Yeah. So this, I think, um, where that's my feeling is that's I think where South Africa is going. I'm sure I'm just going to push you to add a little bit more. And the other thing that you, we've also discussed b- before is the emergence of sort of like an evangelical social conservative block around new middle class elements and how that's playing in South African politics. And that's I think that's that's compatible with the DA's politics. The DA, for example, does not require so whatever you want to say about the ANC, um, and I, I know there's sort of currents with the ANC that wants to. Uh, uh, change some of the more progressive stances that the ANC has on abortion or capital punishment or um, same-sex marriage. The ANC, if that's an ANC policy, and it means that all members of the of, of, of parliament who are there for the ANC, they have to vote, you know, in there's like a line vote. Mm-hmm. With the DA, they don't require their MPs to vote uh, th- there's no requirement that, that that MPs within the DA say have to vote yes on, on 
you know, whether, whether something is discriminating against um, same-sex couples or how abortion has been administered. Like, they can vote whichever way they want. So that opens so, the DA up was, to, to more conservative influence within the party. Exactly. Yeah. That kind of evangelical politics. I think that, so you'd find, like, pastors of mega churches are much more um, open to sort of supporting one or other DA politics. And, and in fact, the leader of the DA himself, Musi Maimani, um, he, he, he's a former uh, sort of lay preacher. I think he still is within his church. Yeah, he still is. Yeah. Right, so- I mean, and the, the, it's like uh, the other section and that we've got to cover, like the last thing, and then I'm going to shut up about asking questions, is we also have to talk about the security cluster and Zuma. So the other thing about Zuma's reign is that his real base in the state has been the intelligence services in and the military and the police. And he's been able to use uh, his past as a uh, spy. He was the head of intelligence services for the ANC in exile to dig up dirt on his rivals, to use political violence, the dirtier side of politics in the state to maintain power. And that's also been another feature of South African politics is that political violence and intrigue within in the intelligence service in the state has been on the rise under Zuma. Yeah, that's that's interesting. I mean, and does that re- represent a fairly significant block in South Africa? I mean, it obviously varies, you know, country to country how big um, the security it, service it, it actually would be, are. It would be interesting. It would be interesting to see how that plays out under Ramaphosa. So a lot of what we're saying is also subject to how Ramaphosa will perform as ANC leader. He has one year. Um, if his faction, for want of a better word, gains the upper hand within the ANC, um, then he can, you know, begin to push out um, those people who are aligned uh, to Zuma. So it would be, you know, it would be interesting now, from now, from now until the election, um, to see whether those people that were that are deployed in the ANC's National Working Committee. I think it's like twenty some twenty odd people. Um, that's the most powerful body within the ANC outside of the top six positions. If if those people who are aligned to Zuma manages to to prevent things like uh, cabinet reshuffles, um, particularly for those for for those for the for what the, the, what's known as the security cluster defense, you know, intelligence and so on, um, and and they prevent Ramaphosa from making any changes around that, then this then the way that the state is organized will continue. Um, but if Zuma manages to pull pull off some kind of soft coup. Where he begins to control those sectors and appoints these people in them, then you then this the way that we're describing the South African state, there might be some qualitative change in how it's being run, I think. Wow, right. So there's still yeah. potential for quite a lot of intrigue there. Yeah. Um, I just wanted to broaden out or to, to look to, to shift the focus leftwards, really, because we've discussed um, the sort of um, black nationalist ideology, the state of the ANC, and especially in terms of its leadership and in the main factions, as well as the DA. What about the South African left? I mean, I know Ben has commented to me personally a number of times that, you know, there is no left in South Africa. I mean, is that is that a statement that you'd agree with, Sean? I would say that the South African left is on the defensive now, that, that it, it's partly because of the failure of when I was describing the, the breakaway trade unions the, to the National Union of South African metal workers um, and a number of other, I think including like farm workers or domestic workers unions, um, that they were going to work towards establishing a workers party in South Africa and that they would then hopefully challenge at elections, the next, at the next elections. 
Um, I think that project is has been stalled or still born, maybe, I think, if you want to use a stronger word. So, and I think to some extent, they, they, they try to bring on board um, mostly these kind of professional lefters from sort of the NGO world mm-hmm. that brings with it like all kinds of heavily, you know, like the, the ideological politics, like the sort of uh, factional, I don't want to call it Trotskyite, but like it brings all that stuff to it. So Baggage. That has, that has stalled. At, this, at, at the same time, there's also like, what is the character of the EFF? So the EFF yeah, is... So a, tell us about the, little, the economic freedom fighters. The EFF is, it's, it's a little bit more difficult to get your head around the EFF. So the EFF, EFF the way they like style themselves, like the way they dress with the red berets and the, the red shirts and everything. I think they sort of took inspiration from Chavez, from the Chavistas in Venezuela. Um, and so they, 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 they push like some of their rhetoric sounds like traditional leftism. Other elements sound like they draw on the sort of more African nationalist rhetoric that comes not, I think, from Biko, but comes from the Pan-Africanist Congress. Um, in other ways, they, they celebrate, uh, say, for example, the birth or the assassin. They're not celebrate, but they mourn the assassination of, say, like um, sort of radical figures outside South Africa, like Sankara or Lumumba. So they and then they do they they'll do radical acts like they'll support people who are, say, um, uh, um, you know, taking uh, uh, invading land. Um, and then they'll do other things. They'll, they'll do those kind of things where they'll they'll spend their energy disrupting the, the president's speech in parliament and doing a lot to delegitimize the way that South Africans look at Zuma as president of the country. Then at the same time, they'll do this kind of act that they did the last week or so where they went and protested this, uh, this uh, H&M campaign with the young man with the T-shirt uh, 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 being wearing mm. a T-shirt, something about a monkey. Yeah. Um, so it's like, that's an ad that's in Sweden, but the EFF somehow felt that it's their duty to spend all their energy on this <laughs> ad in South Africa. So like that's a, so the EFF is, a, is, a, is a, and, and it has it has interesting figures in it. The the uh, national spokesperson is this uh, political science PhD from the University of Advertisran, who is very capable. Um, you know, the, many of them they seem to love education a lot. So it's like a very interesting. They're an interesting organization. They have they do have masses of people with them. They take a number of other positions which none of the other parties would take. I think that they, I have one of my other sort of arguments that I'm trying to work through is I think that they are popularizing the Palestinian struggle again in South Africa. The Palestinian struggle became for a while, I think, mostly associated with sort of a dedicated older activists who come from the 1980s and mostly from the local Muslim community. Um, so it could be seen as like a religious issue or, you know, it, it, it sort of lost its popular appeal. Mm-hmm. I think the EFF is bringing, the, for example, say the struggle in Palestine back. The EFF was one of the first to criticize Mugabe's despoticism in, in Zimbabwe. So it's like it's a very interesting organization for that purposes. But I think a lot of people in the left in South Africa, they're very uneasy about the EFF. And you could see parallels with that in South America when Chavez emerged. The traditional left in South America always had a problem with Chavez. They could never really like rule out like something that's a little bit more populist. The left has very an easy feeling um, to it, which is a debate for another day. So the 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 left, and then I'll make my last comment. The left of the of the NUMSA, I think, is is, is is in crisis. I think the EFF. It's it's very difficult to like figure out 
what the EFF is. And I think finally, um, we haven't said much about this. I think we've alluded to it. The student movement that emerged in 2015 in South Africa, initially mostly around questions of kind of representation and symbols, but then took, I would, well, simultaneously, they were also concerns about outsourcing. Like the outsourcing is a phenomenon of African campuses where universities will hire like a private company to supply the workers to clean the residences, the dorms, you know, uh, work in the in the in the cafeterias and so on. Um, and they took on those struggles, and they also took on the struggle for free education. But the way that they've they've articulated their struggle is not in in leftist terms. They seem yeah. to, they reject the left. They they talk about the left as, you know, sort of crude terms, I think often it's like Marx was a white man, that type of thing. So right. the, the left in South Africa is definitely um, um, uh, in a crisis. I mean, I'm, I'm, I, 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 yeah, I don't have much optimism, sadly, around the left in South Africa. And within the ANC, I mean, there's no more um, sort of radical tendencies within there which could renew the party? No. That's the EFF. Can I just quickly finish? The tendency, I think, and Ben, again, I'd like to hear your view on this. I think the tendency that wants to renew the ANC is not is not a tendency from the left. It's this kind of anti-corruption. It's just another version of sort of establishment politics, which is now establishment politics within the ANC. It's not. It's definitely not a, a more sort of leftist or radical element within the ANC. Right. Uh, I was going to say, so the leftist element of young people in the ANC being politicized that's the EFF. They got kicked out of the ANC and formed the mm. new party. And but I mean, just to clarify why leftists are skeptical of the EFF, it's because for every time they make a stand on, uh, say, in calling for the nationalization of mines or something like that, they'll mix in some xenophobic rhetoric, take on a xenophobic campaign, or uh, be dodgy yeah. about a certain political issue. And right now, the DA, which is decidedly anti-left party, is being propped up in its governance in. Uh, Pretoria, Johannesburg, Pretoria is also Schwane, the capital city, uh, Nelson Mandela Bay, also known as Port Elizabeth in uh, the Eastern Cape, by the EFF. They're putting up a right-wing party associated with like whiteness and uh, white liberalism in South Africa. They're in, in power. The EFF have made mm. sure as a coalition partner in those governance. And that's uh, something which... So as somebody who's decidedly not anti-populist and was pretty pro-Chavez, uh, the EFF is more of a mixed phenomena, and they have about a, they got about a million votes in the last election, but it remains to be seen what room for growth they have. Because it's also very much centered around the charis charisma and popularity of Malema. And and again, if you look at student politics on campuses, I think at the at the sort of main campuses that that set often that sets the agenda for for sort of young the politics of young people in south africa particularly people on campuses i think the eff controls the student representative council um at the university of advertisant and at the university of cape town which is for some it's strange Dasso. reason it's Dasso, which is the youth wing of the da um this is despite the fact that i understand at least half the student population at the university of cape town is black um, I think that the probably the most visible opposition with student politics, say, at University of Cape Town, comes from the EFF. And I think that on most of those campuses, uh, the the former, what they used to call like uh, um, the Bush colleges, the colleges created by apartheid for the different racial groups outside of white people, many of those campuses, I would say the EFF controls politics on those campuses too. So 
I think Ben's point is saying like how we, we, we at some point we'll have to come to terms with what you know with actual politics like this the EFF I think represents actual politics and it will be it it, it it yeah we'll have to like sort of figure out like how we relate to it how we come to terms with it if you're thinking about politics from the left perspective now that'll be interesting to see going forward whether that uh, whether they are able to emerge as a serious kind of left force and, and maybe divest themselves of I guess some of their more kind of shady compromises as, as in the way that you've put it um, um, yeah and also they ha- um, Julius Malema also had a lot of corruption charges uh, leveled against him and his allies heads when he was in the ANC ah right um, and would that be potentially used against him um, you know the kind of uh, yeah. the, the anti-corruption charges um, yeah I- no I don't I don't think that's going to come up again. I think he's so 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 it is true that I think what he the way he also what he also does really well is he combines a kind of like leftist politics. This is why I think people call it populism, but I think he also combines it well with the sort of um redemption that there's a there's a redemptionist element I think to South African politics. It's a very deeply um when we spoke earlier about evangelical Christianity, it it's you know, it's it's very Christian um, um, and so, I mean, Malema, for example, I think he met, he went to Lagos to meet with TB Joshua. This is like a sort of comrade TB, yeah, the big Nigerian who I think goes to Brazil also and Colombia and so on. Um, and he met with, you know, so, so there's a kind of redemptive politics to Malema. So people, people's like, ah, you know, he was in the ANC, he was corrupt, and so they they forgive him and they they move on. So I, I think that's, and then he's also styling himself now as like he lost weight. I mean, like just again, he plays, he plays this political, political spectacle. He lost Got a weight. Degree. They wear the, 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 the uniforms. He submits himself to all kinds of, he'll, he'll go and, 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 and appear at a business breakfast. Like this is what he does. Um, and he, you know, he got married. Like there's like this thing in which he also portrays himself as sort of like, uh, model citizen, like there's a way that they portray themselves as models. So the, Malema got a, a master's degree now. Most of the the, the 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 leadership of the EFF have graduate degrees. So they they'll post that on the, they'll use social media to advertise that on Instagram and Facebook and to contrast, you know, their commitment to education, particularly public education, as opposed to the ANC. So it's like he's very adept. The, uh, not just Malema, but everybody around him in that leadership—they're very adept at how, how like the politics of the of, of young people, and, of, and 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 how that you know how it manifests itself on, um, on social media on social media. So well, yeah, that's, I guess that's interesting uh, in light of what you said right up towards the top of the of the of the episode about the fact that you've got generations coming up who don't have experience of living under apartheid. So kind of to have a of this party targeting more youth issues and, and issues which youth are concerned with and education and so on. Um, that maybe is an interesting sort of angle on matters. Right. And also just one last point on this, like even the H&M, the H&M event, yeah. everyone's is of the tactics and everything, but the way that they, that that, so, so there is this sort of feeling in South Africa that, that, that kind of random acts of racist violence happens in South Africa against black. I mean, that's not a feeling it's real. So what, what, what I think EFF and Malema does really well is to is to is to tap into that that anger or uh, feeling that people have about like you know the ANC is doing nothing about it, and so the EFF says if somebody uh, 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 beats up a black man, puts him in a coffin, 
um, whatever, you know, locks him up in a storeroom or something, and then there's a court case, and the EFF will be at that court case. They'll they'll rock up a hundred strong in some rural town in South Africa um, to, if you want, in you know, show the white races. Like I think that they and the they 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 know how that plays every day on the news, on social media, on Twitter. Like they totally understand. I think that they've more than any other political organization in South Africa. They understand like that those how the how visual politics works, and even if there's a backlash, I think they they work. I think with the assumption that in the long run it pays that that kind of politics pays off. Um, I think we're gonna have to leave it there, unfortunately. But thanks very much uh, to Sean Jacobs. He's been brilliant. He's helped us kind of go deep on South Africa. I personally found it enlightening. I hope you have too. And I would encourage our listeners to go check out Africa as a country. That's it for Alpha Bunga Bunga this week. Uh, We're back on the 7th of February with a discussion on the Oscars and the politics behind uh, the leading Oscar nominees this year with film scholar Marin Tom. So for now, that's bye from me. I'm Alex. Bye from George and from Ben. Uh, Thanks again to Sean Jacobs. Catch you soon. Bye-bye. All right, outro music. To play us out, here's legendary South African trumpetist and activist Hugh Masekela, who died the week we recorded this episode. Rest in power. Mm-hmm.